Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of page 617. And um, he's explaining that the attribute of awe, the attribute of fear or awe of Hashem, be able to sense Hashem's presence is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. Because each and every Jewish soul has a spark of Moses inside of us that's active and alive in us, and therefore we have that ability to develop the sense of Hashem's presence. And he goes on to say that although we all have this potential, but nevertheless, to realize this potential takes effort. And takes, sometimes it takes tremendous effort. And there are no shortcuts. It takes time. You have to spend the time. You have to think. You have to meditate. You have to focus. You have to concentrate. You have to work hard. The treasure is there. You own the treasure. It's yours. It's buried inside of you. But access it, you have to dig. You have to do the work. And no one can do the work for you. You have to be dedicated, you have to be committed, you have to take the time, and it takes time. There are no shortcuts. And then he describes, there are certain souls that are by nature are just very, just fine-tuned. They're just spiritual, by na- very spiritual by nature. They wear their soul on, the, on their sleeves. So it's very accessible to them. They relate to these things. They get excited about these things. So the moment they wake up in the morning and they think and meditate. And everyone has to think and meditate, even the most refined soul. Because when you wake up in the morning, you're in a raw state. You're asleep. You just woke up. And it doesn't come naturally and instinctively. You have to stop and think about godliness. You know, what comes naturally and instinctively is ego, self. So it's something you have to stop and think. But the moment they stop and they think about godliness, it comes alive for them. And they jump out of bed, and it's real. They sense God's presence, and that sets the tone for the whole day. Now, how about a soul a lesser soul, a soul that's not so fine-tuned to spirituality, doesn't respond to spirituality. A much more, a coarser soul, a more materialistic person, a coarser person, a person who relates to material things. Spiritual things sound so distant and remote and abstract and so difficult to grasp. And by the way, this has nothing to do with the level of intelligence. People are brilliant, very intelligent, but they just, they have no intent of anything spiritual. They have no interest in anything spiritual. You have people who are not so brilliant, but they're just souls. They're like souls on fire. They, they hear anything spiritual. They just hunger for it. They just respond to it. They, they, they connect with it. It's a question of a soul. What level, what, what's the source of your soul? What level your soul is at? What level of consciousness? So there are people who are rooted in a higher level of consciousness, and there are people who are rooted in the lower level of consciousness. They can be brilliant. They can have abilities, technical, mechanical abilities, but they just don't relate to spirituality. So for such a soul, it takes tremendous effort. They have to work harder. The treasure is there. Just like if you'll dig deep enough, you'll find water. You can't find it, dig deeper. The water is there. There's no question. The wellspring water is there. You just have to dig and dig deeper. Some people, you just dig a drop and the water immediately bubbles to the surface. The living water. And then others, you have to dig deep. It's there. And having the confidence, knowing that it's there, gives you, gives you the confidence to go ahead and to dig. Because you know, you're not, you know that there's a, you're going to be successful. And it's worth your effort. But it does take tremendous effort. Commitment, dedication, and effort. And then, in addition, 
to make life even more challenging, you know, we, we're born with certain abilities and certain inherent abilities, but then as we live life, we make things even more difficult in ourselves by making mistakes, making certain choices, living a certain lifestyle. We do things that harm and damage our soul, we do things that cover up in our soul, to make our soul even less accessible. So a person who, in addition to all the handicaps, the inborn inherent handicaps that we have, just living life, being a human being and living in this material world, and how difficult it is, automatically it's already difficult to be able to develop a sense of godliness, a sense of God's presence. Even without adding to that hardship, just by being born into this world, it's already a challenge. It's already difficult. It's already climbing Mount Everest. But imagine if on top of that, we do certain things that affect us, affect our mind. We make certain, specifically, certain sexual choices which affect us negatively and contaminate the mind. And um, we do things that actually harm our soul's ability to express itself pornography and, and other types of things which actually um, alienate us from our inner selves and further and deepen our alienation from our spirituality so then it makes it even more difficult for us to access that godly spark that's located at the center of our being it doesn't mean it's not possible. It means now our challenge is even, it's even more challenging. Now it's even more difficult, okay? So now you have to work even harder. But if you will work, you will discover, you will find it. It is accessible. You could access it. But that means that blocks and issues, you know, they don't want to dig. They just put up a big wall. Now it doesn't make sense. I know that's part of it. And it's due to no fault of their own because they were never exposed to anything Jewish. They never had a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience in the growing up. Everything they were exposed to was completely meaningless and hypocritical and absurd and ridiculous. It was a complete turnoff. The first impression to Judaism was probably negative and not positive. Zero positives and all negative. The bar mitzvah was more bar than mitzvah. Um, so what do you expect of them? It's really due to no fault of their own. You can't complain. You can't. So all you have to do is with a lot of love, bring them to a Shabbos table, give them a little chicken soup. <laughs> with a lot of love, just just bring them in and just expose them and you know there's something in the soul there's something in every Jewish soul and that's what he's saying is something in every Jewish soul that resonates godliness resonates within each and every Jewish soul you just have to bring them into the right environment to the right setting but it's there and it resonates so you just have to have the confidence have the confidence in your audience have the confidence enough confidence in our fellow Jew have enough confidence in the material. Have enough confidence in Judaism that it sells itself. That's what the Torah says. All God is asking of you is to be in awe of God. All God is asking of you, and the answer is yes. Because Moses knew who he's talking to. He knows his audience. He's talking to a Jew, a piece of the divine essence, a piece of God himself. So any Jew, all Jews, throughout all the generations, the 70,000 Jews living in the Upper East Side in the year 2009, Moshe is speaking to every Jew because he has confidence in his audience. He has confidence in the material. He said, this, this is close to you. This is dear and near to you. You may not know it due to no fault of your own, but it doesn't change the fact, the truth. It's your truth. And therefore, it's your treasure. And you own it. You own it already. You're there already. You don't know it. Subconscious, it's there. Now, once you, now, in order to connect with it, in order to make it a conscious connection, that you're going to have to roll up your sleeve and work. Even God Almighty Himself can do that for you. That's freedom of choice. That's your choice. So all you have to do is make it available. So the Rebbe opened 3,600 Chabad houses, where every Jew is welcome. It's called a home. You feel comfortable. 
check your labels at the door. It doesn't matter if you're Reform, Conservative, or Orthodox, a Jew is a Jew, is a Jew, just come in. And you know what? A Jew does a mitzvah, he'll never be the same. A Jew hears a shofar once in his life. A Jew puts on tefillin once in their life. A Jewish woman lights a Shabbat candle for the first time in her life. They'll never be the same. Because the mitzvah hits home, the mitzvah resonates. Because the spark is there. The treasure, you don't have to create it. If you have to create this awe, then the question of the Talmud asks, how can the Torah say, all God is asking you is to fear God. All God is asking you to create a feeling of godliness. It's so difficult, it's impossible. It's like climbing, climbing a, a cliff. But no, it's there. You don't have to create it. You just have to reveal it. To reveal, that we can do. Now, it doesn't mean you know, now they're digging. We've reached peak oil where the, all the easy oil has been accessed already. Accessed. But now they're digging so deep. They're going under the ocean, miles under the ocean. They're digging in places that weren't even possible 10 years ago. And just the other week, they just hit in the Gulf of Mexico. They just hit the, like one of the biggest finds in American history. Because now we have the ability and the equipment to go even deeper and to discover, discover that the black gold. But the gold is there. Sometimes you got to dig a little deeper. <laughs> the riches are there. But once you realize that it's riches, once you realize that you have those riches and it's yours, it doesn't belong to the rabbi and it doesn't belong to anyone, it's yours, your very own, it's your life, it's your core, it's your essence, then you just have to drill. But then you motivate. If you know that you're sitting on a gold mine, no matter, so it'll be difficult. It's like the story with the the famous parable about Shabbat. You know, Shabbat is supposed to be a day of rest. But you know how the, we work very hard on Shabbat. And the answer is with a famous parable. If you are carrying, you're coming down the mountain with a huge sack of stone. And someone came to you and you met someone climbing the mountain. He says, you know, how would you like, let me give you another sack of stone. <laughs> he says, are you kidding? Please t- remove my sack. Now, imagine instead of stones, you were carrying diamonds. And then you meet someone halfway in the mountain, he says, and you can hardly move, and you're sweating, and you're carrying this heavy load. And someone says, how would you like another bag of diamonds? Are you kidding? Sure, please. You give it to me with pleasure. But you're sweating, you can hardly move. This is work. This is pleasure. Shabbat is a day of pleasure. Of course, it's hard work. You're learning and you're praying and you're concentrating. But this is, this is, this you call work. Praying, studying, being spiritual, being godly. This is a day of pleasure. It's when you work. That's difficult. So, once you realize that you have a treasure, of course, it's hard work. Nothing good comes easy. He's not promising you a rose garden. Torah is not saying it's easy. But the Torah is saying, once you realize you have a treasure, once you realize that you own the treasure, and it's very yours, you own the rights, you own the title, it's yours, then, of course, it's work, but it's pleasurable work. Because when you have something precious inside of you, you roll up your sleeve, and whatever it takes, it's a pleasure. But you have to realize that it's precious. The problem is, most Jews today, due to no fault of their own, don't realize that being Jewish and being godly is something precious. It's more of a burden. It's like stone, an obligation. Like paying income taxes. An obligation you try to get rid of. You do the bare minimum and cut every corner you can and, and find every loophole under the sun and it's something you don't appreciate and you don't enjoy and you, do, you don't do it with a smile. You do it with a smirk and with, oh, you have to do this again. <laughs> Here we go again. It's more of a burden. But once you realize, once you study the Tanya and you study Hasidic philosophy and you realize you study the Torah, the soul of the Torah, and you realize this is a treasure. This is not a burden. Then you roll up your sleeve and you say, come on, what do I need to do? I'm ready. If it takes an hour of my time, I'll take an hour. And it takes time. That's what he's saying. It takes time. You're going to have to think about it and think about it and think about it again and go deeper and meditate and focus and concentrate until it comes alive for you. But for every Jew, that's the good news, every Jew is able to reach that place. Even though you may be a soul that's not naturally fine-tuned to spirituality. Even though you may be a soul that has made many mistakes in life and has done things which we shouldn't have done, which we're not proud of. And therefore we contaminated ourselves and alienated ourselves even further. If you work hard, 
if you focus, if you concentrate, and you think about it again and again and again, you could make that connection. You could make that conscious connection. Godliness and the reality of God and the reality of Hashem's presence could become a living, breathing reality to you. A reality that will affect your life positively. That you will live your life accordingly. And it will help you live your life and live a good life. The right life. When you said that, you know, so you made mistakes, whatever, but in Judaism, I know, we know that, that, the, that the remnants, you know, I guess sort of remain, but yet we also believe every moment Hashem creates us anew. And then, and then how does that also, with Rosh Hashanah, then what's happening? There's another, it's in another dimension of, of being recreated anew? That's, that's, the, I, that's the optimism. That's where the hope and the optimism of Judaism comes in. That's where there's always a possibility of teshuva. Because God creates the world each and every moment, therefore, you can, oh, if you tap into that energy, you can change. That's why a Jew is always optimistic. No matter what happened in the past, it's a brand new day, it's a fresh new day, you can start all over again. You can turn a new leaf. Because God is recreating the world each and every moment. But you just have to tap into that dynamic energy. If you stay static and stuck, then you can't change. By tapping into that energy that the God is constantly creating the world each and every moment, you can unplug. There's no such thing as stuck. This is the way I am. That's how most people think about themselves. The more I change, the more I stay the same. I can't change. This is who I am. And I better resign myself to who I am. Judaism doesn't accept it. What do you mean? You're constantly, life is dynamic, life is vibrant, it's constantly changing, you're constantly changing. God is recreating you, even physically. How many days does it take for all the cells in the body to change? It's like a brand new body each and every few days. Trillions of cells. So you're constantly changing. This whole idea that we're frozen, and our emotions are frozen, our character and personality is frozen, and I can't change, and this is the way I am, it's ridiculous, it's absurd. The reality of the world is dynamic, the world is constantly changing. You have to plug into that. The more you plug into godliness, the more you plug into that divine energy, that, light, that refreshing energy. You know, sin is like a river or a lake, a fresh lake, fresh water lake, that the source has been clogged up. You know what happens when the source clogs up? It grows weeds, and the lake starts stagnating, and the fish start dying out, all life forms are dying out, and the stench and the lake becomes polluted and becomes... Now, how do you deal with it? There are two ways to deal with this. There is the classical, the Musser approach. Let me start cutting out every weed. Your weed, you're horrible, you're terrible, let me cut you out. You know, if every weed you cut out, another weed grows back. It's, it's, it's a hopeless case almost. And you're dealing with negativity, you're wallowing in negativity. It's like, uh, you know... But then there's the Hasidic approach, the holistic approach. You go to the root. You unclog the source. Once the fresh water starts coming, the, 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 uh, the water starts flowing back into the river. The wellspring water starts flowing back in the river. The river is cured. All the weeds die out. The stench is leaves. And suddenly it's a beautiful, vibrant, dynamic river. The fish come back. Life comes back. Because you've unclogged. You've unplugged. And you've, you've unclogged. And now the river is back connected to its source. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is, let's get back to the source. Let's unclog. Let's go back. God is creating the world each and every moment. Connect with that divine energy. And then every moment is a new moment. So no matter what happened a day ago, a week ago, I could have lived my life for 50, 60, 70, 80 years a certain way. My habits are entrenched. There's no such thing. It's a brand new world. Every, God is recreating the world. Brand new. And that's the reason why every day we have a miniature Rosh Hashanah. Why did God create the world in such a way that we must sleep? It's such a royal waste of time. <laughs> Can you imagine how productive we would have been? I mean, God could have created the world anyway. Why did he have to create the world in such a way that a third of our life is, is flat? <laughs> We're horizontal. <laughs> Instead of, we should have been vertical 24-7, active, dynamic. But God gave us the greatest gift. Because if life was one continuum, you know, it get boring. It's like, it's just a continuation. Here you wake up, it's like resurrection. Every day, it's Rosh Hashanah. Every day it's a new year, it's a new life. You wake up refreshed. Start the new day. What happened in the past is the past. It's a brand new world. It's fresh, it's exciting, it's dynamic, it's inspirational. God gave us that opportunity 
that we should be refreshed and experience the newness of life, the freshness of life each and every day. What a gift. And we daven all over again and we eat all over again. And it's, it's, it's a whole new experience. What happened yesterday is yesterday. Today is a brand new day. So you're never stuck. So that's the reason, the source of optimism because God is recreating the world each and every moment. But again, God gives us all the potential. But it's raw potential. We have to work. The treasure is there. The gold is there, but you have to dig to get it. The water is there, the fresh water is there, but you have to dig to find it, to find that well. God gives us the tools and He gives us the opportunity, He gives us everything. It's ours for the taking. But we have to choose. We have to want it. We have to appreciate that it's a treasure. And we have to dig it out. And that's the most satisfying thing in the world, when it's your own, when you've invested yourself, when it's your choice. And that's what He's saying. It's work. There's no other way. There's no shortcuts. You have to take the bull by the horn and you're going to have to spend the hour and spend the time. And there are no shortcuts. We live in an instant age. Everything is instant. But you know, nothing in life is instant. Nothing good in life is instant. Even instant coffee is not instant. <laughs> it takes time to make it. Nothing good in life is instant. Anything that's instant is instantly disposable. Anything that's real in life, any classical work, anything that's real, that gives you real pleasure, that's lasting pleasure, beyond like chewing gum pleasure, that lasts for, for a second and a half, anything that's real in life, it's enduring, it takes time. There are no shortcuts. That's what he's telling us. There are no shortcuts. You wake up in the morning, you have to pray. Prayer is not short. It's a, it's a long prayer because it takes time to build up, go from one level of consciousness to another level of consciousness, to, to awaken yourself, not only physically awaken, but also spiritually awaken awaken your levels of consciousness till you're able to connect with the godly spark inside of you till it becomes a living, breathing reality and then you can face the day because now I've, I'm in touch I've located the godly point which is the, located the center of my being I've connected with it and now I can go about my day and lead a wholesome life and lead a Jewish life and a good life and a meaningful life and a rewarding and wholesome life but it takes time to make that connection for others it takes more time than others there are those souls who get it instantly. And there are those souls who have to work harder. Just like when it comes to understanding things. There are people who understand things very quickly. And there are people who they have to work on it. It doesn't happen so quickly until they get it. But you know, there is an advantage to those who have to work much harder to get it. Just like in the intellect. People who get things very quickly, people are smart, very smart. They just understand things very quickly. You know, sometimes that could be a handicap. Because you understand it, but it's very superficial. Versus a person who really had to chew on it and digest it and break your head until you really grasped the idea and appreciated the idea and understood the idea. It's much deeper. It's much richer. Your understanding, your appreciation of the concept is much, much deeper and much richer and much more internal. And you know, it's much more enduring. It lasts longer. Versus the person who just has a very quick head. People are, some people are very smart, very quick heads. It's to their own detriment. Because they never go to any depth. They never really understand something in depth. Everything is superficial. Very brilliant, very bright, but very superficial. It's only when you really chew on something and digest it and, and think about it again and again. And then you really get it in a very deep way. You connect with it in a very deep way. So a, a soul has to work very hard on making that godly connection... In a way, it has even a certain advantage because you work through it. It's much more rewarding, it's much richer, and it's enduring because you've, had, you've extended yourself, you've made the effort. If you make the effort, it's lasting, it's enduring. And if it doesn't take a lot out of you, no deposit, no return. If it takes nothing out of you, it doesn't last. If it takes a piece of you, then it lasts. So what, what, uh, how would you handle like, the morning prayers, which you do every single morning, and it's repetition. Every morning you know what you're going to say. So how do you make that come alive? Well, the difference between prayer, and it's a good question, especially now because we're going to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we're going to do most of, the, most of the time, we're going to be spent praying. The whole holiday we spend praying, the longest prayers of the year. The difference between prayer and studying Torah is like the difference between song and, and uh, a speech versus a song. You know, 
if you hear a speech, you can't hear the same speech more than once, twice. A song, your favorite song, you can sing the same song a thousand times. And every time you find it pleasurable. You never, it never grows stale. You don't grow tired singing your favorite song. Why? What's the difference? Why, when you hear a speech at the rabbi, imagine the rabbi gets up every week and will give the exact same sermon every week. I know such rabbis. <laughs> I mean, you're ready, you're ready to fire this rabbi. If I hear that speech once more. <laughs> but you can hear the same song over and over and over again. What's the difference? The difference is that speech is external. Song is internal. Song is something that you experience. It's more spiritual. When you experience something, when you relive something, you can relive something that happened in the past. But when you're reliving it, and when you really relive it, you know, so much that you even feel the sensations, the exact, you know, you're, you're like lost in that experience. It's like it's happening to you right now. It's not something in the past. When a Jew relives a Jewish holiday, we're not reliving something that happened in the past. It's we, we're reliving the exorcism. It's happening to me now. When you relive something, it's like it's happening to me for the first time right now with that same intensity and that same feelings and emotions and experience. When you hear a song, song touches your soul very deeply. Song is the language of the soul. It's the language of the heart. Or words are the language of the mind. And that's external. That's why you can have two people... If, if you speak and someone speaks at the same time, what do we call that? Interrupting. How dare you speak while I'm interrupting? <laughs> now, what happens if you sing and someone sings with you? What do you call that? Duet. Duet. It's beautiful. The more people that sing, a cantor that sings, who's the good cantor? He gets the whole community involved. He doesn't feel, well, how dare you sing and I'm singing. No, on the contrary. What if I say, I speak, and you argue, and you say the exact opposite of me? What do you call that? It's called an argument. You get all heated. What if I sing, and you sing a little differently? We call that harmony. Beautiful. Harmony. When I speak, my eyes are open. Everyone else's eyes are closed. <laughs> but when you sing, you close your eyes. Because you're going deep inside of this. When you speak, you can speak and not mean a word you say. Politicians do it all the time. It's very hard to sing and not mean it. It's very difficult. You can't do that. When you sing, you have to mean it. Whatever type of song you sing, it's very hard to fake it. it it's very, very difficult. When you sing, it, it's, you mean it. You're into what you're singing. You're expressing something that's very real inside. So song is something that's very spiritual versus speech is something very external. And that's the difference between prayer and studying Torah. When you study Torah, you're learning something. Every day you have to learn something new. If you learn the same thing over and over and over again, it's not Torah. Torah is you have to, you have to grow. A new insight every single day. Versus prayer, you say the exact same word. It's completely predictable. I know exactly what I'm going to be saying every day, day in, day out. But you know, because in prayer, prayer is like song. Prayer, I'm not here to learn something new. In prayer, I take the knowledge that I already have and I try to experience it. I try to internalize it. I try to integrate it. I take that knowledge and turn it into conviction. It should move me, it should inspire me. So in prayer, that's why he says it takes time. A thought, I can understand it and I move on. But to experience something, he says it can take an hour. You have to sit and sit in it, and let it sink in, and absorb it, and allow the idea, pickle the idea, and allow it to touch you, and move you, and allow, allow it to evoke some response. Once you experience it, then it's a whole different thing. So, so then every day it's a new experience. Let's go inside, uh, page 617, um, the third paragraph from the bottom. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, he's saying even a soul who finds it very difficult to connect with godliness, not only understand godliness, but to, to feel, to sense the godliness, the godly aspect, to make a godly connection, 
and especially if the Jew has sinned and has been affected, and especially a sexual sin, which really distances you even more from the godly core at the center of your being. But nevertheless, nevertheless, with difficulty and with forceful effort, when his thought greatly exerts itself with vigor and great toil and intense concentration, immersing itself in contemplation of the greatness of Hashem for a long time. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory once said in a talk that a long time means an hour today, an hour tomorrow, until ultimately repetitiveness of intense motion day after day will ensure that no matter how lowly the soul may be, there will certainly come to him at least the lower level of fear referred to above, enough to prevent him from doing something which is opposed to Hashem's will. It's this famous story Rabbi Akiva. What really got to Rabbi Akiva when he saw the stone that's unbudgeable and unmovable, and he saw the water, the drops of water dropping in the stone, drop after drop, and after a long time it made a dent in the stone. So he realized that even if someone has a heart of stone, heart of stone. You don't respond to godly things. You're not moved, you're not in touch, you're not inspired. It means nothing. And nevertheless, if you relentlessly, drop by drop, day by day, you take an hour of your time and you meditate and focus on what we learned in the beginning of the chapter about the reality of God and the presence of God and about godliness. And if you spend the time, eventually you will wear down even the stone, even the heart of stone. So, don't give up. You just, you just have to have that persistence. Be a nudge. Be like a good salesman. <laughs> and don't give up. Don't say no for an answer. You just go. An hour, you're getting nowhere. Fine, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll return tomorrow. And you'll see me again the day after. Until something will break. Until something will penetrate. Something will give. With regard to the Alter Rebbe's above assurance that no matter how lowly the soul, and notwithstanding its previous sins, Still, with intense concentration on Hashem's greatness, it will surely attain a lower level of fear. The Rebbe Shlita comments, We also understand from this that even before attaining this level of fear, the person will surely succeed in undoing his separation from Hashem that was brought about through his sins. He will regret his sins and repent. And the Rabbis of Blessed Memory have said, if a man says, I have labored and I have found, believe him. A person who actually did contaminate himself or did make choices that we're ashamed of or choices, choices that affected us very deeply, because sexuality is something that affects us very deeply. It affects us our very core and essence. If we wasted uh, and took that energy, that precious energy, you know, that's our jet fuel. That's the jet fuel that God gave us. But it's that sexual energy that causes us to soar, fly, fly to the moon, fly to the other worlds. And if instead of taking, using this uh, precious energy that God gave us, this jet fuel that God gave us, and using it like tap water, and treating sexuality like chicken soup, as if it's nothing and meaningless, and, well, I'm hungry and I want a cup of Coke, and, and I have an urge, a sexual urge, and, and just, you know, reducing sexuality, which is the deepest and the most precious and the most special part within us, and reducing it to nothing, to meaninglessness, and wasting all that energy. This is the fuel that fuels our imagination. This is our seeking, our searching, our restlessness, the sexual restlessness. This is what fuels our spiritual growth. This is what causes us to become seekers and searchers and... And it opens, opens us up to the reality, our deepest reality. It helps us get in touch with our, the divine spark within us. But if you take that sexual energy and reduce it to nothing, as modern society has done, I mean, it's the biggest crime that's been perpetrated against our youth by teaching and presenting sexuality as, as, as chicken soup, as nothing. And reducing sexuality to, to adolescent uh, infantile uh, meaninglessness and, and uh, you know this is what has fueled all cultures this is what has fueled all philosophy this is what has fueled our 
spiritual hunger and search and to reduce it to nothingness, it's, it's taking jet fuel, the most precious fuel that we have, and literally re- reducing it to, to nothing, to a cup of water. It's the same thing. I mean, this, this has... For once you realize that you have something so precious, and I have abused it or misused it, misguided, and um, then you regret it, you generally regret it, and you, and you decide to use that energy in a very wholesome way. So that's, that's a necessary step. If a person feels that that's blocking your spiritual growth because of your misdirected sexuality, in a very superficial way, in a very external and superficial way, an empty, meaningless way, then that has to be part of the composition that you will have to regret, realize, and regret. And um, you're, waste, you're wasting the most greatest gift that God gave us, peace of himself. And utilize that energy, harness that energy in a completely positive way. That it should fuel our growth and our hunger and our seeking and searching. And that will break through, that will break through anything that, that clogs or bl- clogs the soul or blocks our growth, our spiritual growth. So by thinking for an hour a day and thinking about the greatness of Hashem, thinking about the greatness of godliness, that will surely lead a person to appreciate, to regret any misguided or mis... mis uh, directed youthful energy that we've misguided and uh, misdirected and will help us harness that energy in a very positive way. And that will remove any barrier, any blockage, and that will help us attain, achieve a sense of godliness. Because until you remove this blockage, you can't really sense, you can't really attain a sense of godliness. A person who has no sense, no appreciation of the sexual energy that God gave us and it's not using it and harnessing it in a very wholesome way, it will interfere. It, will, it creates a blockage and won't allow you to truly experience godliness. There's no way around it. You can't, you can't uh, have, you know, this is the fuel. This is what leads us to godliness. Sexuality is very holy. In Judaism, we don't look at sexuality as something degrading or something negative. Sexuality is the holiest. The bedroom is our holy of holies. And if it's done in the right context, it can help us soar, it can help take us to the greatest heights. And it helps opens our imagination and opens our souls and opens our mind and, and helps us access the deepest parts of our soul. But once it's reduced to something skin deep, pornography, eroticism versus intimacy, the more a person indulges in eroticism, it actually alienates us. It, it kills our ability to be intimate with ourselves and with others. But if a person is able to channel that, that energy properly, that leads us to intimacy, that leads us to a satisfying and fulfilling and loving life. So th- you have to deal with it. You can't approach God and while your sexual life is totally out of whack and totally off balance and totally misguided and misdirected. But if you spend an hour a day thinking about the greatness of Hashem, surely that will lead you to remove that blockage. That will lead you to realize this precious energy that we have and to make a strong resolve to use this energy only in a healthy and a wholesome way. And then, if you continue to spend an hour a day thinking about the greatness of Hashem, then you will be able to make a conscious connection. It will click inside of you. Godliness will click inside of you. Then it will come alive to you. Then it will become something real, something energizing, something that really rejuvenates you and gives you vitality. So, again, it's part of the effort. This is part of the effort. You have to remove all the, all the roadblocks. You have to remove whatever is getting, whatever is interfering. But sexuality is, could be a tremendous roadblock if it's misguided and misdirected. It seems the Eighth really uses sexuality more than any other tool to divert us to Because it's so holy, the greater the potential, the greater, the more degrading it could be. Because if you don't utilize it properly, it becomes the most degrading. 
so precisely because it's so deep, because it's so profound. That's why Judaism looks at this world as the holiest of all the world. All other religions look at this world as being hopelessly corrupt. You're born in sin. Quit while you're behind. You know, this world is hopelessly decadent. Judaism looks at the same world and says, no, this is the holiest of all the worlds. You know why this world is so decadent and corrupt? Because it's so holy. The holier something is, the more potential, the greater the potential, if it's not utilized properly, the more decadent and there's, there's, there's nothing that can lead a person to greater heights than sexuality if it's channeled properly, sublimated and channeled the right way can lead to the deepest intimacy, the greatest love, the most satisfying, the richest, the deepest. And there's nothing that could be as degrading, that could degrade a person and lead, lead, lead to his downfall as sexuality. So because it's, it's so powerful and so... It's like Nachmanides. Nachmanides said... Nachmanides uh, believed that it's an obligation for a Jew to live in the land of Israel. And he practiced what he preached. At the end of his life, he moved to Israel. And he describes what he saw. The Mishnah says that ten levels of holiness in Israel. The holy is being the holy of holies in the, tem- in the temple in Jerusalem. So he says, as he landed in Israel and as he went up towards Jerusalem, as he went up, the holier the place was, the more devastated it was, the more, the more destroyed it was. And that's because it's holy. That's exactly, that's the story of life. The holier something is, the more degrading it is, if, if it's not utilized properly. So because sexuality and love is so deep and so profound and so beautiful, that's why the Torah says you have to protect it. The, the holier something is, the more protection it needs. Because if it's not utilized properly, it could be, the consequences could be devastating. When you walk into a hospital, everything has to be clean. You have to scrub yourself clean. You go into a chip factory, they wear spacesuits. You know, the smallest bit of dust will destroy it because it's so delicate. The more delicate something is, the holier something is, the more precious something is, the more it has to be protected. Look at the Torah. The Torah is covered. It's three covers. It has the mantle, it has the ark, the doors of the ark, and it has the curtain. The, the more it is, that's why modesty, the whole idea of modesty, which especially affects the woman, the Jewish woman, the idea of modesty, because the more precious something is, the more holier something is, the more you have to protect it. It's like, it's like Fort Knox, where the gold is, you've got to protect you, gotta be, you have to be extremely... So the deeper something is, the more profound something is, the more you have to make sure to channel that in the right way. And if it's not channeled in the right way, then it could be devastating. It could destroy you. A person who has no checks and balances, a person who just lets loose and just lets his sexual appetite loose, just follows his every urge and instinct, it can lead to your destruction, self-destruction versus a person who does, who is able to sublimate and channel it properly. I mean, all the saints, all the greatest people, the deepest people, the deepest minds, the deepest philosophers, the deepest spiritual people, deepest mystics, all that powerful sex drives. But they, they sublimated their drive and they utilized it. And that was the fuel that fueled their inner life, their rich inner life. This is the fuel that fuels our rich inner life. To take that and to just waste it it, it's, there's nothing as degrading. There's nothing, there's nothing that can lead a person can, to self-destruction, to your own downfall. So this is a spiritual blockage. There's no going away around because it affects your mind. It affects your soul. It affects your whole being. It's not just a detail. So you can't say, you know, I'll be, I want to connect with God, but God, don't mix into the bedroom. <laughs> when it comes to my sex life, I'll live as I please and I'll go against the Torah and I'll do whatever I want. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Judaism is not some religious rituals and my sex life has nothing to do with God. No, sex, my sex life has everything to do with God. It's the one area of my life that has to do with God. Everything else is details, external, superficial. This is the one area that's intimate, that touches my core, my being, my very being. This is the deepest pleasure, the highest place. This is, so if, if this area in your life is not connected with godliness, if this area in your life is not sublimated and directed and and connected properly and harnessed properly, it becomes a blockage. It blocks you from experiencing God in a real way. You can't be a God-fearing Jew. You can't be a real Jew unless you deal with this area in your life. That's the reality. There's no question about it. I remember about 10 years ago, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about there being half a dozen women's library stores in, uh, in Borough Park. So they wanted to ask, you know, this is... 
you know, erotic Victoria. I don't know if it was Victoria's Secret, but he went on to say, what are these stories doing in a place like Borough Park? And then explain that, you know, when it's used uh, properly, you know, within marriage or whatever. Right. I forget how the exact right. the article there. Exactly. People think that in Judaism, sexuality is something that's, that's, that's dirty or we're ashamed of, embarrassed of. It's not true. The high priest was not allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur unless he was a married man. Marriage, holy, sexuality is the holiest thing. It's the most beautiful thing. It's the holiest thing. There's, nothing, there's no shame. There's not, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's beautiful. But if it's done in the right context, if it's done in the right context, then it leads to love and to intimacy. But if it's just reduced to eroticism per se, then it just alienates you from yourself, alienates you from your soul, and you lose the ability to be intimate with others, and you lose the ability to be intimate with yourself. And then the whole thing is just superficial. So the whole idea of divorcing Judaism from your sex life and sexuality and, you know, I'll live as I please and I'll go violate the Torah and I'll lead a certain lifestyle which is 100% against the Torah lifestyle. There's no ifs, maybes, buts, and whens, and weirds. It's unequivocal. The Torah says it's wrong. This lifestyle is 100% wrong. And people will try to justify it. And I want to be a good Jew. And, you know, this is one area in my life that I, has nothing to do with my Judaism. It doesn't work that way. That's the one area of your life that has everything to do with Judaism. Everything else is superficial. You can't approach God unless you deal with your sexuality in a correct way. So this is definitely a blockage. If you don't deal with it in a correct way, this will be a blockage. This will not allow you to reach the minimal level, the, the introductory level, the cornerstone, the foundation of a Jewish life, which is a sense of God's presence, a sense of God's reality, to connect to the divine in a real way. And then your Judaism just becomes some new age religion and nothing to do with Judaism, nothing to do with God. It's, it's, it's your own nothing, meaningless. So you have to be very real about this. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is, but when, if you spend an hour a day thinking about the greatness of God, it will lead you to appreciate the preciousness of our sexuality and it will lead you to regret any youthful mistakes that you made, any youthful crimes of passion that we may have, we may have, uh, may have occurred. And, and you'll make a firm resolve not to repeat those mistakes, and God will accept it, and that will remove this roadblock. That will remove this obstacle. And now, if you continue spending a day uh, meditating and reflecting on the greatness of God, inevitably, you will, something will click inside of you. You will connect with the reality of God in a very real way. It's a guarantee. But it will take your effort and persistence. Mel, do you want to continue? And as a rabbi, it's not a blessed memory have said, if a man says, I have labored and I have found, believe him. The Rebbe Shalit explains, one labor not only helps a person achieve something commensurate with the amount of labor, similar to the payment received for doing a job, but moreover enables him to say, I have found, for in the case of a person who finds an object, his find is probably greater in value than the labor invested in finding it. Every word of the rabbis is precise. The rabbis say, if you work hard, you will definitely find. Find. Metzia is something you don't work for. You walk down the street, and you, you're lucky day. You find $100 on the street. You didn't work for it. It comes unexpected. All the work in the world won't help you. It just, it just, you found something. You got lucky. You found so why does, he, why does he say, if you work hard, you will find? Working hard doesn't lead you to find something. But he's trying to tell you, when a person lifts his pinky, a person rolls up his sleeve and does the effort, the reward, the result, won't be commensurate to the effort. The result will be far beyond your effort. It will almost be, the result will almost be as if you found it. As if there's no relation to the effort. Because what you will achieve will be so much beyond your effort that it will almost be as if, as if there's no relation to the effort because what I've found is so much more, so much beyond my effort. So all God asks of us is just to try. Just lift up your pinky. Put your pinky in cold water. Just, just make a drop of effort. And God promises if you make a drop of effort, as it says, if you will make a pinhole, just make a little pinhole for God and He will open up a, whole, a huge opening as big as the opening to the temple, which was huge, just from that little pinhole. So God asks us, just lift up your pinky, just try, make a sincere effort, work. And if you'll work and you'll drill and you'll be persistent and you'll be committed, then you'll discover something that's so beyond. Your accomplishment and your achievement will be way beyond your effort. That's a promise.
And it's true in life. Anything spiritual in life, if you make the effort in your spiritual life, in your spiritual growth, the results will be way beyond your effort. Or if you, if you any uh, effort trying to learn and to understand something, you'll see that your results will be beyond anything, anything you can possibly imagine. He says you should believe. Okay, I continue, it is also written. It is also written, for God to the success one achieves when one labors to attain the fear of God. If you seek it like money and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of God. This means in the manner of a person seeking a hidden treasure, buried in the depths of the earth, for which he digs with tireless silk toil, for he knows that it is surely buried there. So one must delve with unflagging energy in order to reveal the treasure of the fear of heaven, which lies buried and concealed in the understanding of the heart of every Jewish individual. Since this treasure is surely concealed within every Jewish heart, all that needs to be done is to dig it out and seek to reveal it. The Baal Shem Tev said, it says in the verse, that the Jewish people are compared to a desirable land. God says, I desire a land that I desire. So just like the earth, all the geologists haven't even scratched the surface of all the treasures that we can discover in the earth. So the Baal Shem Tev said, my mission in life is to uncover all the hidden treasures that are found in each and every Jew. That's the difference between a Rebbe and a psychologist. They both drill the human psyche. A psychologist drills, you can drill the ground, and what do you discover? You discover dirt. Freud drilled the human psyche, and what did he discover? Dirt. A person is a piece of schmutz. A person is an animal. A person is an animal. Then you have, you go dig a little deeper, you discover stones. That, that was Adler. He said the person is defined by his desire for power. But then, if you're a true geologist, and you dig a little deeper beneath the dirt, beneath the stones, what do you discover? Gold, silver, diamonds, gold, awe of Hashem, silver, love of Hashem, diamonds, faith in Hashem, and all the treasures that we've, we're just scratching the surface that are found in the, in the earth. So, so, too, you can look at a Jew, you may be earthy. You're earthy. All you see is mud and dirt and stones. You don't see anything. So you have to realize that underneath the dirt, underneath the stones, lies a treasure. But to get to that treasure, to access that treasure, you're going to have to dig deep. Now, there's two types of digging. There's removing the dirt that's easily removable. You know, a person, just because we're living in the material world, and you get into material habits, so it takes... It takes, um, you have to remove that dust. But then you reach hard earth, hard chunks of earth, we really have to drill. And that takes much, much, much greater effort to get to the water, to get to the treasures. But you have to dig. You know that if you'll dig, you'll find some places you have to dig deeper than others. But if you'll dig and you'll persist, you will definitely find the treasure is there. That's what he's saying, the treasure is there. Every Jew. In the buried in the heart of every Jew, you have that treasure. And you don't have to create the treasure, you just have to reveal it. And knowing that the treasure is there, that gives you the energy and the strength and the confidence not to give up, to persist and to continue drilling and to discover the treasure with, with, uh, within yourself. This understanding of the heart being of a quality and level transcending the limitations of time. Hence, it cannot be said that during a particular time this treasure is lacking and unattainable. And this is the natural hidden fear referred to above. He's saying this treasure is the divine spark within us, which really transcends time. So therefore, there's never a time that's no good. You don't have to be, it's not only you can dig in Rosh Hashanah or dig in Yom Kippur. Of course, naturally, in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's much easier to dig. Our soul is much more accessible. But any day of the year, any time, any place, wherever you are, wherever you're working, wherever you're living, whatever circumstances you find yourself, wherever you're living, anywhere in the world, any Jew at all times, 24-7, could access this treasure. Some days you have to dig deeper. Sometimes you have to dig deep. Sometimes you're not in the mood. Sometimes you don't feel divine. You don't feel spiritual. Sometimes you're open to the divine. Sometimes you're more open to spirituality. Sometimes you're not. But under all circumstances, it's always doable, it's always available, it's always accessible. Sometimes, sometimes you've got to dig deeper. And you know, even the effort, like he said, you spend an hour a day. And if you don't achieve it, 
Fine. If at the end of the hour, you know that you're coming back tomorrow. You're going to pray again tomorrow. I'll do it again tomorrow. I'll, I'll continue drilling. You don't drill in one day. Sometimes you drill and you know, okay, you stop. You have to take a rest. I'll be back tomorrow. And I'll drill another half an inch. I'll be back tomorrow. And I'll drill and drill and drill. Jews are stubborn. We're persistent. We don't give up. We're relentless. And that commitment eventually will wear away any obstacle. And then you can access this godly spark that's located at the center of our being. This is the natural fear, a natural sense of awe, a natural love that we all have to Hashem. So it's there. The question now arises, if this fear is natural and is always found within a true part, why then is it necessary to take measures involving profound contemplation of God's greatness in order to attain it? The Altarari therefore goes on to say that since this fear is found in the recesses of the part, it does not affect one's action and enable him to refrain from sinning. Is this necessary Take steps that will reveal this fear and ensure that it will affect one's actual deeds. However, in order that it heart, where it transcends time and place it within the realm of actual thought that is in the brain. This means immersing his thought in it for a lengthy period of time until it until its effect will emerge from the potential into the actual, so that it affects the soul and body of man, so that he will turn away from evil and do good in thought, speech, and action, because of God who know, who looks and sees, hears and listens, and perceives all his deeds, and searches his opinions and heart. When a man realizes that God scrutinizes his innermost thoughts, he will surely refrain from sinning, and will seek instead to perform mitzvot. As the rabbis of blessed memory said, reflect upon three things, and you will not come to sin. Know what is above you, an eye that sees, and an ear that hears. Subconsciously, we all have this sense of God, the reality of God. The problem is that on a conscious level, we don't feel it on a conscious level, and therefore it doesn't affect us, it doesn't change our behavior. Like the thief that prays to God, he should be successful. He's praying to God, he believes in God, and he's praying that he should steal and it should be a good night. So it's a kind of contradiction, but because it's subconscious, the, the sense of God is abstract. You can't relate to it, you don't connect with it, it's not on the conscious level, so it's not a dynamic, vibrant force in your life. It won't affect your behavior. That's the problem. Deep down, every Jew has a sense of God. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe would write he would write letters, and many letters he would write, and at the top he would write, Ishirei Lekim, a God-fearing Jew. And people were surprised, because anyone who knew this person knew that he was the farthest thing from a God-fearing person. And the previous Rebbe would write in him, God-fearing person, and he was a gender. The previous Rebbe didn't write lies. You know, he wasn't a politician, just buttering up a person and giving him titles that he didn't deserve. So they asked him, why are you writing on this person? And every Jew you write, Ishirei Lekim, a God-fearing Jew. So he says, I'm writing because potentially he's a God-fearing Jew. Deep down, he's God-fearing. He doesn't know it yet. But deep down, he has that, that sense of God. And the, the challenge is to connect with it, to bring it up, to allow it to emerge and surface, that it should become on a conscious level. You should sense God. You should connect with God. Sense the godliness in a real way. It's not just understanding the philosophy behind it, understanding the idea. Understanding ideas don't change behavior. You can understand there are many doctors who understand that smoking is not healthy and they'll give brilliant lectures and even win Nobel Prizes and they'll smoke while they're giving a lecture. Ideas don't change anyone. It's connecting to the godliness. It's sensing the godly. That changes your behavior. When you consciously sense God's presence and you sense that God sees and God hears and God is standing right here and God cares about me and is watching me and, and it affects him and it's, then that will check my behavior then I'll act accordingly. But if you don't sense the divine, then it has no impact on you. Um, sometimes I feel like a lot of this has to do with this sense of um, people's stress and people's time and how much time they actually have to contemplate and get deep enough to make the right decisions. So if you're in a, if you're in a frame of mind where you're composed, you, you can always know who's in front of you. God's in front of you, your rabbi's in front of you, your friends are in front of you. You wouldn't eat the wrong things. You wouldn't um, interrupt someone. You, you would give someone the benefit of the doubt. You wouldn't get angry with someone. You'd be composed. So sometimes it's even difficult when you're composed to make the right decisions. You're sitting at home. You're with a friend. 
they, your friend has TV and you're composed, but the TV's there. So in that instant, you know, what makes you go turn on that person's TV? You know you never watch TV by yourself. So it's even hard sometimes when you're composed, but when you're stressed out, how do you assure, does, does Hashem want us always to say, look, you think this business thing is so pressing that you need to address it right away, and this is why you're overeating and smoking and this, but is he really saying, no, you think this is an illusion, you think you're under stress, you think this is what has to be done, but what you really need to do now is go away, take half an hour, speak to me, um, sit and study Torah, or, um, well, I'll tell you, uh, just to add what you're saying, in today's society is definitely not conducive to taking an hour a day, close the door, close your eyes, and sit and just think, or go inside. We're not used to going inside. We're used to 24-7 constant, constant distraction, constant vacation from reality, constant noise, constant TV, don't think for a moment, mindlessness, either work hard and then go party for the rest of the night, just become mindless, become drunk, become mindless. That's really what society, that's the message of society. Don't think, don't contemplate, don't go deep, don't go in, it's very difficult to go inside of yourself. It takes discipline, it takes, that's the effort, that's what he said earlier. Half of the effort is just to keeping quiet and just shutting up inside and being quiet and just going inside and closing your eyes and just thinking. That's half the effort. That takes tremendous effort because naturally we're scattered. Naturally we just think and think and we don't, we don't, we don't stop just to go deep inside and to really contemplate, you know, connect with something real. So that, that is, that's true in all days and ages, and especially in today's day and age. It's so easy you know, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you just turn on the TV, and you just, you just do mind, you can go for hours and hours just being mindless. You know, who has the effort and the, who has the time and the effort and the energy to sit down and to close the door, to close your eyes, and to really think, and to go deep inside of yourself. But of course, it's tremendously rewarding. Once you do it, once you have that commitment, once you taste it, as it says in the Psalms, Tamuru Vashem, taste, and you'll see that God is good. You have to try it. Try explaining to someone who never tasted spaghetti, who never tasted a certain food, how it tastes. You can't explain it. Try it. Experience it. A person who experiences once, maybe that will motivate him to continue doing it because you realize it's so refreshing just to stop all the distractions, stop all the noise, and just be quiet and go inside and connect with something real in your soul. But you're right. Most people can go through life today go through years and years without stopping for one moment to really keep quiet and go inside and connect with something real. It takes effort. That's the effort. That's the most difficult effort. Just, just being silent and just going inside and shutting the door. And that's really what prayer is supposed to be. That's how you have to start the day. That's why we have a block of prayer. It's a time we close our eyes during the Shema. The first thing you do in the morning is shut out the world. Just, just quiet. Just go deep inside Make that connection. Because once you make that inner connection, that inner richness is there. But you have to allow it some space. We don't give, if you don't give it space, it can't emerge. You could be a billionaire. We have this treasure inside of us. But if you don't give it any space, the soul has nowhere to emerge. We don't give it any space. We get so loud and so distracted and constantly talking and hacking and chiming and talking to ourselves and constantly being distracted and mindlessness. We don't give it the space. But you know, you have to treat it with respect. Treat your soul with respect. Give it the respect. Your soul wants to tell you something. Your soul wants to speak. When was the last time someone spoke to you? And before they even said a word, you interrupted them and you didn't allow them to, to say a word and edgewise. Your soul wants to speak. Your soul wants to tell you something. It's your soul. Your soul has a language of its own. But give it the space. Give it the respect that it needs to say what it needs to say. Your soul can't speak so quickly. Your soul has its own language, its own words. You have to give it the respect, give it the silence. Remove your ego. Get your ego out of the way. Just silence yourself. And just listen to what your soul has to say. Your soul has this natural awe of Hashem, sense of Hashem. It's there. Allow it to emerge. And you know, you have to have patience. You have to check your ego. Remove yourself. Just get out of the way. Really, just get out of the way. Your soul has a language of its own. That's what Shabbat is all about. Shabbat is a day of rest. 
Give your ego a rest. Just get out of the way. And then the soul emerges on its own. The soul doesn't need. The soul is there. The holiness is there. But on Shabbat, you just, just keep quiet. Just silence yourself. Just remove all your weekday mundane things. Just get away from all of that. And just allow your soul to emerge. And once you allow the soul to emerge, then it's the most pleasurable day of the week. There's nothing as pleasurable. When you make a deep connection, a deep inner connection, and it's a soul connection, and you experience godliness, not just intellectually know a concept, a nice idea, but when you can experience it and connect with it on a conscious level, there's nothing more rewarding. And that becomes a foundation, a founding stone. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Rosh Hashanah is a time of awe. It's a time when we connect with this sense of the awe of Hashem. And that becomes the foundation, the cornerstone for the entire year. This is the building block for the entire year. This is our foundation. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golas, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas, once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev, he tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbes published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya. We ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring, and a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now, when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.